decide to take all of the giving that's obligatory in our lives and we decide to go above and beyond to give back to the Lord out of uh, our joy and totally not out of obligation. And so just as an opportunity, we do something called extravagant giving where we choose an in-house ministry to give to, we choose a local ministry to give to, and we choose an international ministry to give to. Our in-house ministry this year, I'll talk about in a minute. Our local one is Teen Challenge Women's Home, which does not yet exist, but we want to seed money into that for Women's Home in Buffalo, New York. And then our international, you can clap for that, that's exciting. Our international ministry is uh, Engineering Ministries International. We'll talk about those two later. Uh, but the in-house ministry this year is for our kids. And we have a dream. Rebecca Hannon, who leads our kids, has a dream to create a music studio and a discipleship program to develop the skills and the heart of worshipers in our kids. So really spend some time on that with the dream and the vision that 11, 12, 13 years old, we have children that are leading us in really incredibly pure worship from this stage. Wouldn't that be incredible? I mean, not like, hey, like on a Sunday, let's bring them in and they're cute and they do something like a little Christmas program, but I mean like on a regular basis leading us in worship. So totally not obligatory, totally if your heart is into it and you want to give to one of those things, we'll collect it all and divide it at the end of December among those ministries, but just an opportunity to apply our hearts to that. So if you want to, you can do that. Got a question for you. Uh, What is your favorite Christmas song? You know, uh, if you've been around this church long enough, you know that Christmas is not my favorite time of the year. In fact, I'm wearing this shirt because Buffalo Platte is where Christmas is at this year, and I just want to invest in, you know, leading my heart towards the place that it should be. But I want to tell you, something's different. This, something is different about this time of year for me this year than it has been in all past years. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because, like, everybody's canceling their stuff, and so maybe it's like a more pure celebration. Maybe I need to talk to Jesus about it a little more. But I, I find myself being incredibly emotional around Christmas songs and the Christmas story as I'm reading it in Scripture. I, I read an article about Hanukkah yesterday, and I'm, like, like, like laying in bed, you know, reading it, and I'm just like, <laughs> God, you're so good. I don't, I don't know what's going on with my heart, so pray for me because maybe something's going on. Lord, you know, I'm like, babe, have you realized that I have been playing Christmas songs like while I'm cooking dinner and singing and like something is going on in my heart. And I don't know about you, but like these Christmas songs are really powerful. And as I was getting ready for this sermon series, I I was writing down some of the most powerful lines. I mean, there are some great lines of incredibly deep theology in some of our Christmas songs, like Oh Holy Night, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Or the, or the other line from this, truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. That's good stuff. Or how about the, the classic, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lowly exile here, until the Son of God appear. I mean, like you can almost feel it in those lines, in, the, in the, the tune, like the longing of the human heart. Now there's those kinds of like really good deep theological songs, and then there's some really God-awful songs that people have wrote about Christmas. I'm gonna name three of them that you've probably never heard of before. Did you know that John Bon Jovi's first credit, musically, ever, was for a song called R2-D2, We Wish You a Merry Christmas? On a, on a Star Wars-themed Christmas album? You can look it up. You can hear it. Do you know that Spinal Tap has a song called Christmas with the Devil? 
You can look that one up too. And you know that Snoop Dogg, good old Snoop Dogg, recorded a song called Santa Claus Goes Straight to the Ghetto. And it was a collaboration featuring Nate Dogg as well. I don't know. You got to look them up maybe on your ride home. I don't recommend it, but probably wait till the kids are not around to look any of those up. Now, those are ones like we've never heard of, and we can make fun of that. But there's also common popular songs that play all the time that we, we, we would recognize that have some really incredibly horrible lyrics. Like, what, what about that song, Baby, It's Cold Outside? With the line, say, what's in this drink? Seriously? Are we, are we singing about this? Or how about, it's the most wonderful time of the year? What's wrong with that song? Let me, let me quote you one of the lines. There'll be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting. That sounds great. Caroling out in the snow. Christmas time. There'll be scary ghost stories. Like, how did we go from caroling out in the snow to scary ghost stories? Maybe we got our holidays mixed up. Or have a holly jolly Christmas. Like, I get have a merry Christmas, but what's a holly jolly Christmas? And do I really want one? I don't know about that. Or what about the line, giddy up, jingle horse, pick up your feet. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't even know what to do with that one. Or the song, bring me some figgy pudding. First of all, what is figgy pudding? Second of all, what if I don't have any? If I don't have any, I'm in trouble because you're not going to go until you get some. <laughs> and then there's the song, The Little Drummer Boy, with the line, pa rum pum pum I looked it up. It's pa rum pum 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 In fact, that's the entire chorus, either pa rum or pum 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 the whole song. Now, I used to make fun of that song, but here's the thing. There's something actually deeply theological about that song. Because in that song, a, a little boy, a character, I don't I, there probably wasn't a snare drum at the first Christmas, I'm just saying. I mean, maybe a cajon, I don't know. But there's something about a, a young boy saying, what can I bring to my king? With all of my resources, what do I bring? And he actually, that song is following in the Christmas tradition of wise men who brought their very best and laid it at the feet of Jesus to worship him. I want to talk about that this morning. We're going to continue in our series called Mighty, where we look at how God takes the seemingly unmighty people and gives them sometimes even unmighty things to do, but somehow in his kingdom and in his power and in his wisdom, he accomplishes mighty kingdom results with it. And we're going to talk specifically this morning about how our resources, whatever they might be, are mighty in the hands of God. In order to do that this morning, we're going to look at a biblical account to see how this is true. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. Just to give you a setup of the book of Ruth, this book was written sometime, we think, during the kingdom or the reign of King David. And it was written to describe how David came to be. And that's integral to our story because we're going to end there, or I'll kind of land sort of there. But what's interesting is this book was written about the time of the judges. There were no kings in Israel, and at this time, all the tribes lived in their own territory. God had moved them into the land, and that's the setup for our story. In In a town, a city called Bethlehem, sound familiar? There's a man and his wife, and his, four, or his two sons. And famine hits the land. And so this man, Elimelech, and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons decide that they're going to move from Bethlehem 
across the Jordan River to Moab where there's not famine happening. They feel like they can make it better while they're there. And scripture tells us that while they're there, the husband, Elimelech, dies. And Naomi is left with her two sons. But all hope is not lost because her two sons get married. And and they marry Moabite women. They marry a woman named Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and Ruth. There's so many names in this one. This is like, I had to practice these and I'm still not getting them right. But we'll get to it because it's basically about a guy named Boaz and a guy named Ruth and a lady named Naomi. Those are easy ones. We'll get there. And so... Naomi's sons marry two women of Moab, but then tragedy strikes again, and her sons die. Now, you have to understand, in this culture at this time, it was very precarious for women to be by themselves. Land could not pass to and through, and you didn't have people who could work the land. In an agrarian culture, this was a horrible thing to be left without men or husbands or sons to carry on the family name. And so Naomi decides as a widow that she's going to go back to her hometown. I, can't make, I couldn't make it in Bethlehem. I can't make it here in Moab. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. Maybe I can somehow make it there. And as she decides to leave, her daughters-in-law say, we're tied to you. We're coming with you. And partway there, she turns to them and she says, listen, just stay in Moab. I have nothing else to give you. You can't wait around for me to have more sons. You'll be old. I have nothing as a, as a widow to give you in Bethlehem. There's nothing with the people of Israel and nothing with me would you go. And her one daughter-in-law takes her up on the offer But her other daughter-in-law, Ruth, says this to her. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. And may the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And so Ruth continues on with Naomi, and they arrive in Bethlehem, and the town kind of goes crazy. They're like, hey, Naomi has returned. Let's see what God is up to. And then they're like, and who's this lady that's with you? And she explains, it's my daughter-in-law. Now, we pick up the story in Ruth chapter 2, verse 1, because another character comes into it, and his name is Boaz. And here's what it says in Ruth chapter 1. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and that's a key part of the story, so just remember that. The King James Version says this, and Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's. He was a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. That term, mighty man of wealth, should be very familiar to us. It's just translated differently here. It's literally the term, Gibor Chayil. We've been talking about what it means to be Gibor, what it means to be mighty, and in this scripture account, it's translated a mighty man of wealth because Boaz was not just a mighty warrior or a mighty hero, even though it's the same word used here. He's a mighty man of wealth and a mighty man of influences. He had a lot of resources at his hands. And we're introduced to him because he's going to be key to this account in a minute. And so Ruth and Naomi find themselves in this land. It's new to Ruth. And Naomi sends her out and says, listen, there's a tradition in our land that if you are poor, if you are destitute, if you're a widow, when they reap and harvest fields, the poor people are allowed to go behind the harvesters and to pick up the grain that's left. In other words, if they cut it and they don't gather it all. And in fact, the the reapers and the gatherers are told not to gather it all, to leave some, to leave the corners of their fields to, to those who are poor who didn't have anything so they could come and find a way to make it work. It was God's way of setting up a social security system so the poor could always at least eat. And so Naomi tells Ruth, 
this is how we do this in our country. Would you go and would you gather? And so Ruth goes and she works in the field of a man named Boaz. And everybody kind of says, this is pretty incredible what's going on because they watch her, her work ethic. They, they know that she has committed herself to Naomi and they see how she labors in the field and eventually Boaz comes around. And scripture, or not scripture, commentators tell us that Ruth was so beautiful that you couldn't help but notice her. And Boaz notices her. Who is this woman? Who is she? And the servants don't tell him about her beauty because he's noticed that already. They tell him about her character. And Boaz is so taken with her character, he says to her, listen, stay in my fields. Work in my fields. No, none of my, he gives instructions to his men, leave her alone, don't touch her. In fact, he says, why don't you leave a little extra for her? And then when it's time to take a break, he invites her. He says, come and sit and eat with me. And he blesses her and sends her home. And she has a, a ton of barley that, that's a barley harvest. She has a ton when she comes home. And Naomi rejoices over this. And in fact, Ruth works the entire barley harvesting season with Boaz's crew. And at the end of the season, she's, they have what they, have to, they, what they need to eat, but they don't have enough to go on. And, and Naomi says to Ruth, listen, we don't have anything to kind of carry us through. But I have a plan. She says, here's what you're going to do. It's, it's, it's time to, to pound out the barley, to separate the, the kernels out. And they're going to do this all together. They're going to do it at a, at a threshing floor. And Boaz, who oversees this, will be there. And here's what I know. I know there's going to be a, a great party. They're going to eat and they're going to drink. And he's going to fall asleep there. She says, I want you to watch where he falls asleep. I want you to get all dressed up. I want you to put perfume on. I want you to go to the threshing floor, and after he falls asleep, go and lay at his feet and uncover his feet. Now, I don't know about you, but I have no idea what that means. But Ruth, uh, Naomi knew, and Ruth knew, and we'll explain it in a minute. And so Ruth does exactly as her mother-in-law instructs. She goes to the floor, she waits till he's asleep, he's asleep notes where he is, lays it, uncovers his feet, and lays at, at her feet. Now, some commentators say there's something hinky going on there, but based on the character of these two people, it is not something messed up that's going on. They're not getting it on. And because this is also a public place. <laughs> so a lot of people would have seen their, their character flaws in this. But basically what Scripture says is that Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night. His feet are cold. And when he does, he's surprised, Scripture says, to see this young woman laying at his feet. And she says to him, listen, would you take your blanket and would you cover me up? Now, I understand that. That's hot, right? That was a joke. Nobody <laughs> caught that. Hey, would you cover me with your blanket? Now, she wasn't just asking to be warm. She was asking for a marriage proposal. That's literally what she was doing. See, Boaz was an old man, and in that culture, he could not go to her and propose marriage, but she could come to him. In fact, there was a tradition that they were operating under here called the tradition of the kinsman redeemer. This wasn't something that was brand new. This was set up in the very beginning as God was making a people out of his, and want, they were wandering through the desert. He says, when you get to the land, if there comes a point where a woman's husband dies and she does not have sons to carry on the family name, in other words, there's nobody to give the property to, to carry this on, so it's always in the family, so everybody is provided for, then the closest male relative will be given the option to marry you to redeem you, to buy you back. And what would happen was they would literally give money to the widow 
to buy the property. They would marry the widow, conceive children with the widow, but all the money stayed with the widow and the land stayed with her. It was a system to make sure that those who had resources took care of those who didn't so that they could be redeemed, so that they could be bought back. And Boaz says to her, he knows exactly what she's doing. She says, you're my kinsman redeemer. He goes, I know, but listen, there's... uh, Tell me this guy wasn't already thinking about it. He, he says, listen, there's a kinsman redeemer who's closer, so don't worry. In fact, Scripture says this. When he wakes up and he sees her, uh, in verse 10 of chapter uh, 3, he sees her and he says this. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You're so, showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after younger men, whether rich or poor. He noticed her character. And then he says this in verse 11, don't worry about a thing, my daughter, I will do what is necessary, for everyone in town knows that you are a virtuous woman. That declaration that he makes about her is really interesting, because he's called a gibor chayil, he's calling her a chayil. He's saying, you you have character, you have virtue. Your resources are not mighty for wealth, they're mighty in your character. And then he says, listen, there's another redeemer that's closer to than me, so I'm going to go and make, get this worked out. So very first thing the next morning, he goes to the city gates where all business is conducted. He says to the man who's closest, he says, hey, Naomi's land is available. Would you like to redeem it? And this man's thinking, yeah, I'm going to make some money off this. I'll go ahead and do that. He says, oh, by the way, it also comes with Ruth. And the first kinsman redeemer, the closest kinsman redeemer, refuses to do it because he said, it might mess up my inheritance for my kids. He doesn't want to mess with that. And so Boaz does the transaction at the city gates. He marries Ruth. He brings her uh, into his tent. They conceive a child. And that child's name is Obed. And eventually Obed grows up and conceives a child with his wife. And his wife gives birth to Jesse. And Jesse is the father of King David. This is a book that's written to explain how King David came to be. But it also shows us that our resources, whether they're mighty or they're just our character, put into God's hands produce mighty kingdom results. And so I want to talk about that very briefly this morning because we only have a couple minutes. These resources that God has given us, put in his hands, are highlighted in mighty ways, three ways in this text. First is this. Our resources in God's hands are mighty for relationship. What do I mean by that? This is primarily a love story. This is God putting people together in relationship through using their resources. Ruth was not chasing Boaz for his wealth or his handsomeness, but for his character. And Boaz was not willing to take Ruth on and redeem her because only of her beauty, but because she was a woman of character. They took their resources and they put them together for relationship. Boaz had noted Ruth's relationship with Naomi. She said, he said, you're a woman of character. Our resources can and should be used to build and maintain relationships. Now, I'm not saying for prostitution. Because normally when we say money for relationships, what do we mean? Prostitution or like imagine a kid in middle school who doesn't have a lot of friends but he has a pretty good allowance and he's buying his friends. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the real relationships that matter, having our resources go towards them. What do I mean? It's like a father with his children, right? If I have resources, I want to give them to my children. My son lost a tooth. And I remember growing up, I got 10 cents, 25 cents. Sometimes if the tooth fairy forgot, the money grew and I would end up with a dollar, right? Like 10 cents extra every night. Is that how it worked in your house? I don't know. But anyways, my son lost a tooth and we were deciding how much money to give him. And last night I'm just like, give him a a little extra. 
Because I just, I want my resources to be available to my children. That's what we're talking about here. When God has given us resources, they are mighty to build and to solidify and to make relationships. And they ought to be. Out of relationship, our resources should flow. When our resources from, are from God, we are willing to spend them on others. When we think that they're ours, we don't do that. And we're selfish. Generosity of resources has been given to us by God to build relationships. How has God been with us? God is incredibly generous with us. And it's not just material resources in which he is uh, generous with us. He's generous with grace and with mercy. And if God has been generous with grace and mercy for us, how much more so can we use those resources that we've been given to be generous with others and to build relationships, no matter how great we think our resources are or how poor we think we are? Whether it's material or it's character, God has given us resources that we ought to use to build relationship. The second way that our resources are mighty is mighty for legacy. This is a story about the long-term legacy of our decision-making. Our resources have the power to last generations if we will use them for the Lord. The decision that they made ended up with David, who became king of Israel. The decision that they made affected not only themselves, not only their town, but also the entire nation of Israel because they were willing to put their resources in God's hands. We may never know the power of the legacy we'll leave with the resources God has given us. How we spend our resources matter, and it can last for generations or it can last for two minutes. The choice is ours. Are we going to put them into God's hands? The bad thing about this residue, about this legacy, is that it can last for generations when we make bad decisions. But here's the great news. God has not only made our resources powerful for our legacy and for residue, but he's made them mighty for redemption. That's our last point this morning. God has made our resources mighty for redemption because this story is not about Ruth. It's not about Boaz. It's not even really about King David. It's about redemption. It's about our Lord Jesus Christ. Because God put David on the throne and then he made a promise. He said, your kingdom and throne will last forever. How does it last forever? It lasts forever through Jesus Christ. Let me explain to you how this connects. Ruth was from Moab. God expressly said multiple times in Scripture that no one from Moab should ever be allowed into the assembly of Israel. Moab, the nation, started in an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. The, the people of Moab were related through Abraham to the people of Israel. But when they were coming from Egypt and they were coming into the promised land, the people of Moab were afraid and they wanted to protect their own resources. And so they hired a prophet to prophesy against the people of Israel. And because God was with the people of Israel, that prophet could not do anything but bless them. And Moab had set itself up so much against Israel that God says multiple times throughout Scripture, even after this account, through other prophets, that Moab will be destroyed, that Moab must never be brought in. Nobody from Moab can ever become part of the promise of God. And yet here is God himself taking someone who is completely helpless and outside of the system, who had no resources that we would look at and say, that's powerful, we should bring that into our kingdom. He brought Ruth in. And he made her part of the story of his redemption, not only of a people, but of all people through Jesus Christ. This is what our God does. He takes us when we are utterly helpless and unable to do anything for ourselves, and he brings salvation 
into our lives. He does that through the kinsman redeemer. And God is our kinsman redeemer. God is our close relative who is willing to take his resources and apply them to our lives. Romans 5, 6 says this, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Hebrews 9, 12 says this, with his own blood, not the blood of goats and calves, with his own blood, with his own resources, he entered the most holy place once for all time, and he secured our redemption forever. He indeed is our kinsman redeemer. God emptied himself of his resources to become like us, to live as one of us, so he could pay the price that none of us could pay. And he paid that price for our redemption. And here's the truth. Our resources in God's hands can be used to bring people to his redemption, to connect them to their kinsman redeemer. So here's my question for each one of us that's here this morning. Here's God's question for me and for my heart. First, are we done using our resources to try to make it work for ourselves? Will we stop going to Moab where the grass is greener? Will we stop trying to come back to Bethlehem? Maybe it would be better here or better here. Will we stop going out in the field and trying to make it work? Because the truth is this, they had enough to eat, but they didn't have enough to leave a legacy. Wasn't going to last. Can we just say right here and right now, we are going to stop trying to use our resources to make us right before God. Our righteousness, our character, our money, whatever it is, will we just stop and recognize that we need a kinsman redeemer? But once we have done that, will we stand and say, God, my resources as large or as small as they may be, in your hands have a mighty impact. And so me, my life, my income, my family, my character, my name, whatever it is, I am a living sacrifice for you. I'm putting everything I have in your hands, God. Would you, would you do something mighty with it? That's the question. And if you're willing to answer that question in the affirmative this morning, I just want to invite you to stand because I want to pray God's blessing over us as we decide to put our lives in his hands and make ourselves available. God, we stand before you without a whole lot of resources. But we stand before you recognizing that we have a kinsman redeemer, one who did something for us when we could do nothing for ourselves. And because of that, you have brought us in. You have made us part of your family. And all of the resources of heaven flow to your children. And so, God, we're so grateful that you've been generous of grace and mercy with us. We're so grateful that you've been generous to us in terms of material resources. We're grateful that you've been generous towards us in terms of character and relationships. But, God, we take all that and we don't hold it lightly. We put it out before you. We put it into your hands. And we say, God, may the resources that you have given us be used to bring others to redemption, that you would build a legacy of kingdom through us in powerful ways. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Amen, amen. Come on, somebody give the Lord a hand this morning. He's good. Come on, we can do better than that. Let's go, church. Give the Lord a hand. 
Hallelujah. He's so good. His presence is in this room. A couple announcements before we let you guys go online, before we all leave, and I'll let you guys